Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice brought to you by GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock. Hello. And senior reporter, Luke Haynes. Hiya. Coming up, we'll be discussing the latest news, which this week includes a look at NHS digital plans for a mass data extraction of all healthcare records for patients in England. We're also discussing the additional roles reimbursement scheme and asking, will it make a difference to GP workload? Later in the podcast, Luke talks to Dr Tamsin Ellis, a GP in London and chair of the London branch of the Greener Practice Group, about greener general practice and why GPs should take steps to help tackle the climate crisis. And finally, as usual, we'll be highlighting some positive news. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. So first up, patient data. NHS Digital's General Practice Data for Planning and Research, or the GPDPR initiative, which will see a mass extraction of data from GP patient records in England, was due to go ahead on the 1st of July. However, this week's ministers and NHS Digital slightly backtracked on the plans and they have been delayed until the 1st of September. The decision follows intense lobbying by the BMA, RCGP and others, who said that a lack of publicity about the plans meant patients may not understand what was happening with their information. So, Nick, what exactly is the GPDPR and why does NHS Digital say we need it? So what this is about is a new system for extracting data from GP practice IT systems. Data extraction itself isn't new. Uh, The current system, which has been in place for about a decade, already scoops out data from patient records for things like generating payments to GP practices for work they've done. uh, And it's also used in anonymised form for research. And this is something that's actually been ramped up under emergency legislation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And NHS Digital says data from GP patient records has helped with research into treatments and vaccines for coronavirus, monitoring the impact of the virus and developing public health policy to manage it. But the new system that NHS Digital wants to roll out, the General Practice Data for Planning and Research Extraction, GPDPR, goes further than the current mechanism. The new system will basically extract all coded data in GP records. So that's data on diagnoses, symptoms, test results, medication, referrals, and crucially, some more sensitive information around factors such as sexual orientation, mental and sexual health. It it won't include written notes, letters or documents, and it will exclude some coded data that's protected by law, such as uh, data on IVF treatment and gender reassignment. But NHS Digital says this large-scale data extraction, which was originally going to start from the 1st of July, uh, will be easier for practices in terms of the administrative burden. And it says this, this huge swathe of information available from patient records can support better planning and commissioning of health and care service and drive improved research. So why has it been delayed? Why, why have they put it back till September? So campaigners, including GPs, MPs and others, have said that fundamentally uh, the plan to extract this huge amount of data without fully making sure patients understand what's going on and have had a chance to opt out if they choose to is a breach of the confidential GP patient relationship. So GP leaders have said it shouldn't be left to GP practices to explain to patients what's happening and that the government should be fully upfront about it and roll out a massive public information campaign to make sure that people are aware of it. And um, in the absence of any public campaign, Uh, The BMA and others felt practices which have responsibilities around management of data under the Data Protection Act simply hadn't had enough time to consult with patients or satisfy themselves that they were doing the right thing by allowing this data to leave their patient records. There are also some concerns that although the data won't include patients' names, uh, the richness and breadth of the information being shared could mean that ultimately it can be matched back to individual people. 
Um, the MP, David Davis, has said he'd, he'd had his nose uh, broken five times. And he suggested that might put him in a tiny group of people nationally and that it might be possible from information like that to, to identify individuals from this massive data set. So, I mean, ultimately, people also want more clarity over who the data is going to be shared with uh, and for what purposes. And there are some real concerns about how tough it is to opt out. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I found a bit surprising, you know, is that patients who wanted to register a type one opt out, which means they don't want any of their data to leave their practice at all. They were originally only going to be given until the 23rd of June to do that, which wasn't really much time at all, given the lack of publicity, as you've mentioned. I mean, NHS Digital have also said, which I also found quite worrying, that anyone who registered a type one opt out after that date wouldn't have any further data collected, but it would keep the data it had already extracted, you know, which makes that deadline even more critical. So this delay means there'll presumably be an extension to that date, which is obviously clearly what a lot of people wanted. Yeah, I mean, and, and that those sort of concerns are part of the reason why, um, as we've reported uh, last week, that... Uh, dozens of practices were planning to sort of block the sharing of their data, basically by refusing to switch on the the widget that lets um, NHS Digital extract the information that, that it needs. And it remains to be seen how that will progress now that this delay, which pushes back the data collection by two months to the start of September, has been agreed. Thanks, Nick. This week on GP Online, we've also been looking at the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, or the ARRS, or ARS as it's fondly known uh, at GP Online. The ARS is the scheme that provides funding for primary care networks to recruit additional staff and is a major plank of funding for the five-year GP contract deal that came into effect in 2019. In 2020-21, the scheme was due to provide £430 million to networks to pay for staff salaries a figure that was set to rise to £1.4 billion in 2023-24 with the aim of recruiting an additional 26,000 staff to primary care. That's full-time equivalent staff. Recently published data from NHS Digital suggests that the workforce in PCNs that are involved in direct patient care rose by 40% in the last quarter of 2020-21. But is this increase being felt on the ground? Luke, what have you found from looking at the data and speaking to primary care networks? Yeah, so as you say, the sort of the most recent data show a healthy hike in um, uptake over the last quarter of um, around forty percent. But the problem is that we just we don't have enough data, and I think only around two thirds of PCNs have actually sort of contributed to the to the set. So we don't know how accurate these figures are, and we probably can't make sort of any grand conclusions. We also don't know the total money that has been claimed in 2020-21 because the data just isn't available. But from speaking to clinical directors, a lot of them say that they actually did manage to use their full allocation, or if not very close to it, um, during, during the last spending period. Some CDs even said that they had already allocated their uh, entire funding for next year, so the 2021-22 period, um, which is a great effort considering everything that's um, going on in general practice at the minute with sort of huge workloads. Um, so I think this is all good news. And considering some of the clinical directors I spoke to in February said that they weren't going to spend um, their allocations, it's good that some of those who are the same people actually did manage to to use their full funding. So despite not having sort of complete data, it does does suggest the well, people have suggested to me that on the ground um, recruitment is is still happening. So obviously the ARRS represents a huge amount of funding for general practice, but I mean it's not all been plain sailing. What are some of the problems they've had with the initiative? 
Yeah, so there are um, a few issues that are still sort of ongoing. And I think the first two can sort of be linked to funding. So many PCNs have recruited, which is great, but they've been forced to top up wages um, in order to attract sort of um, people to the to their positions. And for a scheme that sort of promises um, free staff to networks, I know clinical directors have been quite frustrated that they're having to take money out of other areas and put it into into this recruitment scheme that should be 100% funded. So it's almost a bit of a false false offer. And um, yeah, a few clinical directors have been really frustrated by that and continue to be. The other area in which clinical directors have told me that funding is needed is to cover training and supervision. Um, so all of these new staff are coming in and they need to be integrated. They need to be trained um, to make sure that they understand the systems that they'll be working in but um, at the minute networks don't receive funding to backfill the time that clinicians spend so for example clinical directors on supervising these staff and the time that they're using to train these staff isn't being paid back for and I think that's one area that um, clinical directors have said that uh, that needs to change and funding needs to be provided. So flexibility in the roles PCNs are actually allowed to recruit for is also a bit of an issue isn't it? One of the main things that has been problematic with the with the R's or the R's, if I suppose, has been um, the fact that practices have been restricted to who they can hire. There are there are sort of ten plus roles that they can hire to now, but um, the problem is that even if the money is there, sometimes the um, the staff that they can hire it's not the best option for them. So many people, um, clinical directors, have said to me that there needs to be increased flexibility around the recruitment scheme to make sure that they can um, hire the most appropriate members that are going to help their practice deliver better services. Yeah, so we've talked on the podcast a lot before about the workload crisis in general practice, um, a lot of which predates the pandemic. I mean, the ARRS is seen by NHS England in particular as a way of getting more staff out there to help support practices. But is it actually going to make a difference to GPs' workloads? I mean, what, what are people saying to you, Luke? Yeah, I guess it's sort of the key question, isn't it? Um, so, There's no doubt that the recruitment scheme is bringing in staff into general practice and they are having an effect um, and a useful effect. So, for example, during the pandemic, they've been helping out with the COVID vaccination campaign and many um, additional staff. They've been helping to vaccinate patients that are coming into the surgeries. And another clinical director told me that they're also helping out with sort of long, long term conditions management. Um, So overall, there are more hands on deck, which is always really helpful for workload management. But I think what was quite telling was the other week when we spoke to the BMA and they said to us that even though additional staff, they have um, helped to alleviate some of the pressures, the main problem within general practice seems to be the lack of GPs that we have at the minute. And um, I think one of the other things or sticking points is that even though they've had this funding for staff to come in, they're also taking on new work um, through the service specifications. So it sort of comes back to the shortfall of, of GPs and it's a real major issue um, at the minute. Yeah, just to, just to come in on that point about whether the ARRS can solve the workforce crisis uh, or the workload crisis in general practice. I mean, obviously, like Luke said, it has the potential to help. It has helped up to a point. Uh, but a couple of reports that have come out this week really emphasise how deep the problem is in general practice. Uh, MPs from the the House of Commons Health Select Committee produced a report this week that highlighted chronic excessive workload across the NHS and the sort of wave of burnout that's resulted from that. And they linked this to long-term failures of workforce planning in the NHS, saying that basically the health service uh, gets the staff it can on the budget it has, rather than being able to go out and get the workforce it needs to match up with demand, which is a really key, you know, a key difference. 
Uh, and we've just reported on data from the NHS Practitioner Health Service, which offers confidential support to doctors and dentists in uh, mental distress, uh, showing that it's seen a huge rise in cases over the first 12 months of the pandemic, and GPs are significantly overrepresented in that group. Um, and there's no shortage of information, basically, about just how far the government needs to be prepared to go to support the NHS workforce. And the question is really whether they can find the money and the will. Thanks, Nick. You can find out more on all of the stories we've talked about today on our website at gponline.com. So we're joined today by Dr Tamsin Ellis, who is a GP in London and one of the chairs of the Greener Practice Group, a primary care climate and sustainability network. Tamsin is the RCGP faculty lead for North East London and primary care course lead for the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. She's also got a keen interest in planetary and sustainable health, climate fairness and health inequalities. So she's very well placed to speak to us today about this topic. Um, welcome to the podcast, Tamsin, and thanks for agreeing to be our guest um, for today. Thanks for having me. To start off with, I thought we could talk about what your role with Greener Practice involves and how you came to start working with the group. So my personal journey started back in 2019. So you might well remember at that time we had Extinction Rebellion taking to the streets. We had Greta Thunberg outside the Swedish Houses of Parliament saying that the youth should go on strike. And we had the UK government declaring a climate emergency. And before that, my knowledge of climate crisis was what I'd known from school and kind of reading the odd thing in the papers. So that was when I really started to take notice. And it started off with me thinking about my workplace. So at the time I was a GP trainee in hospital and I'd seen that we didn't have any recycling, that the heating was always on in summer, that the lights were on when I was on my night shifts. And I started to think that it was all estates that needed to make the difference. So it wasn't until I did some training with the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare and did some more reading around it that I found out that lots of the emissions in, in primary care are clinical and what I'm prescribing, what I'm doing day to day. And that's when I kind of started this journey and joined Greener Practice. And being chair of um, the Greener Practice Group in London, what does all the branch, what does that sort of involve? Yeah, so uh, the Greener Practice Network started in Sheffield and then has kind of grown. And we've now got 11 groups across the UK, including London, Wales, you know, Glasgow, all over the place. So I started, like you said, from the RCGP faculty, we'd got scholarships and we started to form a small group. And we've now grown the group to just under 90 members across London. And I love being part of the Greener Practice London group. It's full of enthusiastic members, lots of energy, and we meet every four to six weeks. Uh, it's normally a themed event. So a few months ago, we had a GP who had a really keen interest in cycling and she'd encourage cycling on prescription. And she invited along Cycle Sisters, which is a group that encourages mostly Muslim women, uh, BAME women to start cycling. And we talked about, you know, how we encourage patients and staff to start cycling and active travel to work. Can you sort of explain, I guess, why why the group was set up and what, what it sort of does or aims to do? Yeah, Dr. Arti Bansal, who is a GP in Sheffield, founded the group. And along with lots Lots of great GPs there. They started collaborating and having meetings, thinking about both what we can do um, with patients and in our communities and in the GP practices to make a difference. And you can read the full kind of aims and values of the group on, on the website. But essentially what we are is we're a group where our main focus is to create a supportive and collaborative place in which primary care staff, so that's not just GPs, that's nurses, pharmacists, everyone is involved in and feeling empowered and taking action on the climate and ecological emergency. And that's both in terms of how we talk to our patients and also what we're doing within the practices and our staff teams. 
So the group itself is part sharing resources, sharing success stories, and part supporting people to take on these leadership roles and have groups around them where you can network. Are people quite united in terms of how they've come to join the group? So like yourself, you sort of, I guess, became more aware of, of the problems as you were sort of a junior doctor and things were happening in the news. Is that fair to say for some people or um, have, have people joined for lots of different reasons? Yeah, so I think there's a big mix of motivations for why people join the groups. It could be that people are thinking about their families and their kids are coming home from school and talking about it and thinking about future generations. I think there's lots of crossover with other things that people are passionate about. So one of the things that I feel quite strongly about is there's lots of crossovers with inequalities and the invest care at law where you know the people who are most in need of help don't get it so for example access to green spaces we know that people who live in deprived communities like the one that I work in are less likely to have access to green spaces which can have an impact on their mental health and various other things so I think there's various motivations I think lots of people sometimes it feels like a wake-up call and as soon as you start reading about it I think it feels like a no-brainer because lots of these things have co-benefits and the things that we're already working towards already like person-centered care. So I mentioned in the intro that you had a particular interest in climate fairness. Could you explain what that is? Yes, I'm really glad you asked because I think it's really central to what we're trying to do as a group and what I feel passionate about, which is essentially that those most at risk, those most marginalised, those most vulnerable, those people that we see all the time in GP, you know, the young and the old. Um, I work in a in a diverse and um, deprived area of London. Those are the people who are most at risk of the effects of this and the health impacts of this. And, and you know, we know that, you know, globally, there's lots of work about people who are in the most affected areas who are already being impacted, places like Bangladesh, that, you know, often those people aren't responsible for the emissions. And so I think there's a kind of element that we need to be working on this when you're in a position that you can. And also listening to the voices of people who have been working on this for years, for example, Indigenous communities. So that's all part of what we should be thinking about when we're centering all of those health discussions and all of the discussions about climate health and sustainability people sort of may not automatically put general practice and um, sort of environmental issues together I wondered if you could explain how they link up and also after that sort of why GPs should be taking an interest in um, in the environment and and their climate crisis so I'm really glad you asked about climate and health because when I first started I thought well, what's it got to do with the NHS why is that another job for me as a GP but actually, I think I think about this now as cli- the climate crisis being a health crisis and that the effects of a warming planet are very much going to have impacts on our health. So that's direct impacts, things like heat and flooding, as well as the indirect impacts, so problems on mental health and displacement and obviously kind of rise in vector-borne diseases and things like that. So I think there's lots of health issues that are raised by, and you know that's happening right now in the UK in terms of climate-related events. But at the same time, the other thing that we know about health and being GPs is that one of the key core values in, in GP is prevention and that prevention is better than a cure. So lots of the things that are involved in sustainable healthcare also include that are thinking about how we get people more active, how we get people out of fuel poverty, 
how we kind of look at people's diets, all these things that we'd be talking about anyway. And we can come at that from a sustainable lens. And and earlier you sort of mentioned that there were a sort of a set of values that the that the group had. I wondered if you could maybe pick a couple of them and just explain them a, a tiny bit for us. So I think if you if you look on the front page of our website, it kind of breaks it down into four core principles. So thinking about improving health right now and looking at things like air pollution, activity levels, protecting future health. So that's but partly through mitigating those threats, you know, lots of us own the buildings that we work in or, or have working on sites that could be impacted by flooding and things like that. Like I said before, reducing health inequalities. And importantly, it's thinking about how we improve our workload. You know, GPs are completely overwhelmed at the moment. And these things, if we put it in a way that makes it easier for GPs, we can also save GPs money and we can hopefully make our lives better. And so what can um, GPs and, and surgeries sort of start doing to make a difference? I know I did speak to Dr. Auntie Bansell. She said just little things like having a bike rack outside of your practice sort of encourages obviously staff and also um, patients to bike. And I yeah, just wondered if you had any tips for, um, for GPs about what they can start to do or things that are quite easy to embed quickly. Sure. So exactly like you say, there's simple things that we can do. I think sometimes I try and think about it as what we can do at an individual level in our personal lives, what we can do at a practice level or at work, and then, you know, the bigger things thinking about lobbying governments. So if we're thinking about it just as a practice level, I'd say the first thing to do is have a look at the website. There's tons of resources on there and ideas and things that have worked for other people. There's also the Green Impact for Healthcare Toolkit. So that's got ideas like cycling in there. Um, and it's got things that you can audit. It's things that if you're a trainee or you have a trainee, you can talk about putting in place as kind of QI projects. And that's another thing that you could think about. I think the other good place to look is the Froome website. So Froome Medical Centre in Somerset has really led the way on these things. They held a conference in 2020 and they've got lots of videos, policies that you can have a look at and put into place in your practice. So all these things, I think it's really difficult in this. And I started as a trainee and you're just, you're, there's lots of barriers and there's lots of failure when you're trying to do these things. So it's kind of thinking about starting small and also starting about what is important to the people at your practice, what they want to do and what they would like to change. So it might be that someone's really interested in recycling, or it might be that you can do a big switch that's a one-off and switch your energy provider. A lot of people at the moment are focusing on inhalers or greener respiratory care, which you could do a whole other talk about, but that sometimes that's like 25% of primary care emissions come from inhalers. So it's a huge hot spot. And it's one of those things that we can improve good quality care at the same time. So we know that people overusing their salbutamol inhaler is a marker of poor control. So if we talk to patients about that, as well as thinking about the greenhouse gases that come from the propellant inhalers, that we can have those win-wins again. I was going to ask, sort of, what are the benefits for practitioners and, and um, practice owners that maybe you might not think? Yeah, so there's, there is financial benefit. So if you're struggling to win over that partner who doesn't want to get involved, <laughs> then we know that from the Green Impact for Health toolkit, that when they've audited it, they found that practices save on average about £1,000 a year from putting two measures in place. In Froome, again, the practice I mentioned earlier, they saved £10,000 when they made these changes and really embedded it into their policy documents and everything that they were doing. 
And I think, I think for me, it's kind of also helped my climate anxiety. It's helped me taking action and meeting like-minded people and having something that you can feel you can do in this quite large scale issue. At the same time, we know that GP practices are struggling with retention at the moment. And it's certainly something that I looked for when I was looking for a job. And I know that Froome have had people come to them looking for a job. So in terms of thinking about keeping GPs and what motivates GPs, you might find that people want to work in practices that are championing this. Before the um, the pandemic struck, I know there was quite a lot of messaging around um, reducing our usage of single-use plastics. Obviously, PPE has been an essential part of pandemic life and continues to be vital in protecting frontline health workers. But I wondered if it was problematic environmentally and whether there were alternatives that GPs and other healthcare staff could use. Yeah, so it's a very relevant question right now. I think the starting point again for me is thinking about how we reduce the waste. So, for example, I literally just had a meeting before actually with someone who's in infection control who was talking about the fact that in some places they're putting on everything for every single patient. In other places, we've gone back to business as usual. And so I think part of it's thinking about safety and following the rules, but also questioning why we are doing those certain things. So, for example, with gloves and apron, I've gone back to just using them when they were necessary and when I would have used it before you know just good hand hygiene as the mainstay of how I go about my job there are alternatives for certain things but I think some of it's thinking about the supply chain so you know there's lots of single-use items that we use and thinking about whether they could be potentially made for something else that's still safe and I was really lucky to be part of the pilot reusable face mask trial that was headed by Alexis Percival and that was GP's trusts um, taking up these washable reusable type 2R tested masks and it's been great because I've hardly thrown away any surgical masks since October since I started using them they're really easy to use and I know that there's GP practices again who've, who've bought into that and bought them for their practices I think it's about weighing up safety and looking at where we can think about procurement and at the same time thinking about alternatives and making sure that we are championing them and that we're putting them on the procurement list so that we can that the NHS can buy them. And then in October last year, NHS England outlined plans to become carbon neutral by 2040. Um, I just wanted to get your sort of thoughts on this and whether you think it's a realistic goal. I think in order for this to work, we need both ends of the spectrum. We need the grassroots level and we need the energy from people who are working clinically and on the ground, but we definitely need top-down um, incentives and we need things coming through so that again it makes it easier for GPs it means that they're incentivized to change and it means that we are all thinking about this in a more strategic way so I'm really hopeful with those two things with the kind of energy at the bottom and the the push at the top that we will meet those targets um, and become the first healthcare organization in the world to to do it. Well thanks so much for joining us today Tamsin that was a really interesting discussion and there's plenty there for people to take away if you do want to find out any further information about the group and their work, go to www.greenerpractice.co.uk. So finally, we've just got time for our regular end of the show good news. This is where we aim to highlight some positive stories from general practice. So if there's anything you'd like to share about work your practice is doing or initiatives in your local community, please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. So this week, it's my turn to highlight some positive news. And I just wanted to talk about some responses we've had to a survey that we've been running over the past week or so. We asked people to highlight any positive stories from the past 18 months or things that made them proud to be part of general practice. 
And what came through really clearly was how well GP teams have worked together in the face of unprecedented work and the challenges of the pandemic. Over the past year, we've reported a lot on burnout, workload and pressure, which are all very real problems in general practice. So it was really heartening to see these comments, which showed that the support GP teams have received from each other has been invaluable in getting through all of this. And despite all the negative publicity about face-to-face appointments and claims that practices have not been open when in fact they have, we also received a fair few comments from practices saying that they had lots of positive feedback from patients about access. In particular, people saying they valued the way practices have adapted and made good use of remote consultations, which meant they still had access to their GP or practice nurse without having to come into the surgery at the time when they were feeling really nervous to do so. Well, that's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks to Nick and Luke. And a big thank you to Dr. Tamsin Ellis for speaking to Luke this week. We'd love to know what you think about the podcast. So please do get in touch on Twitter at gponlinenews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.